Welcome to episode four of the A to Z for Archaeology. I'm Nikki. I'm Alice. And I'm Jenny. And today we've got a very special guest, if you'd like to introduce yourself. So I'm Julian Thomas, and I'm Professor of Archaeology at the University of Manchester. Brilliant. Okay. So has anyone got any questions they want to ask to start off? Um, yeah, I know that Dorsten is a multi-phase site because I, I dug there. Would you be able to take us through the various phases of building there? So Dorsten is a village in Herefordshire. It's in the southwest of Herefordshire, just in the, the, the little uh, bottom left-hand corner of Herefordshire before you go across the, the, uh, the border into Wales. And Dorsten Hill is a site which uh, has been known for quite a while as being clearly of, of some archaeological importance uh, but only recently have we realized the, the sheer depth of the activity up there so there are flints there that date to the Mesolithic and the Neolithic. Um, what we've demonstrated in the course of I suppose 10 years of investigation now is that there are a series of uh, timber buildings which date to the very beginning of the Neolithic. There are three of them and they're apparently burnt down quite deliberately and then each one of the three buildings forms the core of a mound uh, of a funerary monument. So you have arguably uh, houses of the living being replaced by houses of the dead. They're arranged in a line end to end. Uh, so they run across the hilltop at the narrowest point where you'd come onto the hill from the, the ridge beyond. Uh, so all of that is happening in the period, I guess, around about the, uh, the middle of the 38th century BC. And then later on, uh, maybe a century or two later, uh, at the other end of the hill, the tip of Dorsten Hill overlooking the Golden Valley and looking over towards the Black Mountains of Wales, there's an enclosure there, a causeway enclosure. So a, uh, an enclosed site with uh, interrupted ditches. And there we seem to have people gathering. Uh, we don't have terribly good bone preservation, but in the patches where we do, there are lots of animal bones. So that's the suggestion that people are gathering together and feasting on the site. Uh, there's lots of really nice flint work on the site. Uh, there's amazing pottery. Um, and the ditches seem to be re-dug on numerous occasions and there are little bowl-like recuts in the tops of the ditches and these various cuts and recuts have finds in them. Some of them seem to be placed so some of those animal bones seem to be deliberately placed and there's at least one place where we've got half a pot kind of unrolled uh, around the bottom of a recut. So there's an awful lot going on. It continues after the, uh, the um, Neolithic activity because just beyond the causeway enclosure on a little spur that sticks out into the valley uh, there's a very small enclosure which seemed to have, seems to have been constructed in the late Iron Age and then re-dug in Roman times with a big v-shaped ditch and there are bits of uh, Roman amphora and a, a, a silver coin from the, the Roman period. So there's, there's amazing activity going all the way through from the Mesolithic to the Roman period. Do you um, know who would have used the site and what they'd have been doing there? Uh, different people at different times. 
I think it's very likely that in the Mesolithic period, it's, it's a, a site that would have been just infrequently visited. Uh, perhaps people coming there in the course of seasonal movements around the landscape. When you get into the Neolithic, it's interesting because we have three timber buildings replaced by three long mounds. And yet each of the timber buildings is architecturally different. So one seems to have a, a suspended wooden floor. Uh, one has very substantial, uh, huge post holes that apparently are structural to the building. Um, another one seems to have a, a more beam, beam slot kind of construction. Again, with the long mounds, they, they also seem to have very different architectural organization. So the westernmost mound uh, is trapezoidal and it has a whole series of um, constraining stone walls and stone buttresses attached to it. So it's very like the architecture of a Cotswold 7-2, some of which are over in the Black Mountains no distance away. Whereas the easternmost mound is uh, completely different. It doesn't have the stone walls, but it has a linear mortuary structure, very like the, uh, the long mounds of Eastern Britain. So there's a strong suggestion that you're dealing with different communities rather than just one group of people. And that from quite early on in the Neolithic, you're seeing this being established as a place of, of gathering. And that then plays through into later on in the Neolithic when they build the enclosure, where again, it's the kind of place where you might expect to have lots of different people coming together. So um, it's, it's, a, it's an important place, but it's not necessarily just associated with one group of people. And you know, that might be very significant, the fact that we have these timber buildings right at the start of our Neolithic may be telling us that it's, as far as the West Midlands are concerned, an almost foundational place for a new way of life at the start of the Neolithic. So you mentioned, um, <coughs> sorry, um, that people are coming from all over the landscape. Would these have been people with very separate identities or would they all have had a sort of common thinking? A bit of both, I think it's very likely. Um, what has been uh, recognised quite recently through isotopic work is that with, where you have these causeway enclosures, it's definitely members of different communities who are coming together. And sometimes those different communities have uh, distinctly different diets. But equally, it looks like the distance that they're coming in is not absolutely huge. It's, it's very often within sight of the enclosure. So we're probably talking a, a, about groups of people who live within 10 or a dozen miles of where the enclosure is placed. And I think the same is probably going to be true at, at, at Dorston in the preceding period when we have just the long mounds and, and the timber buildings. Uh, so that's really very different from what's going on in the late Neolithic, where when you get places like Dorrington Walls and Stonehenge, there are indications from animal bones that people are coming enormous distances from Northern England, maybe from Scotland and certainly from Wales. So there seems to be, as we go through the Neolithic period, a sense that enclosures and meeting places are drawing in larger groups of people from a wider area as time goes on. And so like, that's more driven by social things than trade or anything like that? 
Yeah, and I think that when you're looking at the Neolithic, the the um, the distinction between economics and, and social relations isn't a terribly easy one to sustain because very often exchanging things is the way in which you build alliances and you know, give away bride wealth and dowry and so on. So it's very often the case that the circulation of, of goods and the circulation of animals as well, I think, is very much connected to things like kinship relations and, and the, um, the ebbing and flowing of alliances between communities. Um, I was just wondering, like, obviously, hopefully some people from the University of Manchester will be listening to this. Could you talk through, like, what the excavations at the site have been doing? Like, what have the students typically done? What have you found? That sort of thing. Sure, absolutely. So I think one of the things that I've really liked about Dawson is that we've run it as one of the training projects uh, for the department and so there's many generations of Manchester students have passed through Dorston and it, it's I think a very good bonding experience for people. Um, we've tried to make it a, a learning experience for people so that they will go right from the very basis of having no fieldwork experience to doing a, a whole series of different tasks and I think one of the great things that uh, Manchester has pioneered is the fieldwork passport where each uh, each trainee student is as they go along checking off a whole series of things that they've learned how to do so we would expect most people to learn how to trowel how to identify features uh, they should be doing a bit of drawing sections and plans hopefully they'll be doing a bit of fines processing and so on and so on so that they they leave after their two-week period or maybe a bit longer, um, with most of the basics of the work that you do on an archaeological site in place. And it's very often the case as well that we find that students come back for a second or a third season and they then hopefully we, we're able to give them a bit more um, responsibility as they go along. They might take uh, control over a particular bit of recording or help other students um, almost supervising them on a little part of the excavation and so on. So we, we, we find that it's, it's a good way of taking people through the learning process. And certainly a lot of the, uh, the former students who've, who've worked at Dawson have gone on to jobs in field archaeology. What's like the most exciting thing a student's found on the dig? Well, uh, yeah, there's a good story about that. Um, in the, there's the three long mounds end to end and the middle one had a big pit alongside the, the the back end of it and it looked like a grave so we thought oh this is wonderful we're going to get a lovely burial in this and uh, we were digging into this feature and the student who was digging there was suddenly terribly crestfallen and i said oh no it's modern i've got a bit of glass and they held up this thing and it's actually a bit of worked rock crystal. It's an absolutely beautiful rock crystal blade, uh, about two and a half inches long, which is very, very rare. And you could tell that it had been napped, but to begin with, people thought it was a bit of bottle glass. So that's one of the very nicest things that we found. Yeah, that's quite exciting. So was that like a grave good kind of thing? Or? I think it was because that, that, uh, that pit had bits of cremated bone and a big area of, burnt timber which we think may be some kind of a board that's gone in with the uh, the cremated body 
Um, and that's one of the, the interesting things about these long mounds is that they seem to attract subsequent deposits. So particularly uh, the, yeah, the central mound and the eastern mound have a whole series of things inserted into them. There are cremations being dug in, which might be late Neolithic or early Bronze Age. There's a whole series of, of features in the eastern mound, which are really weird because they're quite big pits that have been dug in. And then they've been lined with big slabs of stone. And then onto the stones have been put cremated bits of, of human bodies and cow bone. So it's, it's as if there's a kind of continuity being created between the initial people who were deposited in the, in the, the mound and, and subsequent generations. Yeah, I suppose that like talks to the ancestors, doesn't it? Absolutely, and I, I think those themes of continuity and tradition and memory are really important at Dorston, that because it's a place which I think is bound up with the, the beginning of a, a Neolithic way of life in the West Midlands. So people keep coming back again and again and again and reworking the place, creating new kinds of structures, uh, depositing new deposits, burials and so on over really quite a long period of time. And I think that that, um, that is about the way in which the history of particular communities is giving a given a tangible manifestation in a particular place. So would you say that the burial practices at Dorsten are typical of the British Neolithic burial practices in general or are they a bit different? It's really difficult to, to, to say that. Our, part of our problem is that over most of Dorsten Hill we don't have bone preservation because it's very acidic soil so there are these little patches where we get a calcareous conglomerate that's called cornstone and there we get bits of, of bone surviving. Also we get the burnt bone surviving. Now in the easternmost long mound there's a linear timber structure with two massive great posts, one at either end of it. And that's very similar to the ones that you find at, at, at long barrows in southern and eastern Britain, like Fossils Lodge and, and so on. And there you would expect to find bodies being placed into uh, the chamber and gradually being reorganised, uh, long bones being stacked and maybe skulls being put together as the bodies rot down. Now we don't have the bone to tell us that that's been going on inside that chamber, but what we do have is that that linear chamber seems to have had its own u-shaped ditch dug around it at a time before the main mound has, has been raised and in that ditch it seems that we've got a great mass of cremated bone so one possibility is that that bone has at some time been inside the chamber and has then been pulled out as part of uh, the shutting down of, of the mortuary monument uh, and been thrown into a secondary position but what we can't say is whether there was cremated bone in the chamber or whether uncremated bone inhumations were taken out and cremated and then put into the ditch and the radiocarbon dates that we've got for all of these contexts are very very tight together they're all coming out right in the middle of the 38th century bc so we can't really say what the sequence is there is there a, a reason why the site would have gone from mortuary to habitation or um, use by living people? 
Yeah, I, I, that's a really interesting question because it, this this pattern of structures for living being transformed into structures for the dead is one that does seem to occur right the way through the European Neolithic. So if you look at on the continent, you very often find linear band ceramic longhouses, which have fallen into decay as they've been abandoned. And then either they've had burials inserted into them or they've had enclosures constructed around them. So I think part of what is important here is that, as we've been saying, ancestors are really important to, to Neolithic people, as is that sense of continuity back through the generations. But sometimes it may be the past structures themselves that are what you're venerating. So ancestral places may be as important as ancestral remains. So when you're building a mortuary structure on top of the remains of a house, you might be just creating a new place for, for putting the remains of those ancestors, but you might also be creating a tomb of the house. And I think also one of the things that's going on in much of the European Neolithic is that there's a very close relationship between dwelling places and the identities of groups of people. So the house in both senses, if you think about when we talk about the house of Windsor or the house Targaryen, um, you're talking about both a community and a dwelling structure. And I think that's a, that's a lot of what's happening in the Neolithic. So at what point do you think that community being like a living structure and then at what point do you think they turn it into like a place for the dead? Well, that's, yeah, that's a, that's a really good point because one of the things that we've got at Dorston is that that linear mortuary structure that I've been talking about is very likely to have been stood between two of these buildings before the buildings are burnt down because we've got some burnt material in the top of the, the linear mortuary structure that suggests that it was open when this burning was going on. So there's, a, there's an ambiguity there between structures for the living and structures for the dead. I don't think it's very likely that these timber halls were, were year-round dwellings. They're not like farm buildings or something like that, although there may have been people living in them as kind of caretakers some of the time. I think they're more likely to have been rather like early medieval halls, um, places for meeting and possibly as well, places that are associated with particular people. So if you think about, um, you know, Beowulf or Tolkien, the way in which you talk about such and such a person's hall, I think it's very likely that there's a presiding figure uh, over these timber buildings. And if that's the case, that it's very likely that the, the, the occasion when they're burnt down is the death of the, the person who's the, uh, the whole person. But again, you have to ask, is it necessarily the case that those timber buildings were for living in at all? Um, and might they also have been places for the dead? So there's a real ambiguity about where a, a structure goes from being a place of dwelling or you know, a hall for gathering to being a, the, the place of the dead. And you know, that, that again is ethnographically a pattern that we see around the world, that there is always this kind of ambiguity. So um, in Polynesia, you have structures that start out as dwelling houses, but end up being temples. 
And so there's this, this sense of a, a shift through time in the way in which you're using a place. And that, that there's almost a layering of memory and association to these places as time goes on. And they gather importance and they gather history as time progresses. So the structural changes, the, the burning down and the reconstruction and so on, is only one aspect of the history of, of these kinds of places. Okay, so that association would come on like slowly. Yeah, absolutely. There's an accretion of memory, if you like. Um, have you finished with, with Dorsten? Or are you um, planning on going back and, and doing more excavation on site? Well, Dorsten itself is finished, but we're not finished with the Dorsten area because there's a whole series of sites in the immediate vicinity that I still want to, to work on. Um, I certainly hope that we're going to be able to, to go back in the near future because we were hoping before the pandemic struck to go back this summer. Um, and indeed, one of the things that's going to be new in future is that there will be American students coming to work alongside the, the, the Manchester students in, in future summers. So the next thing that hopefully we're going to be doing is working at Arthur's Stone, which is a megalithic tomb just up the road from Dorsten, which I think is arguably part of the same overall complex. We think it's a Cotswold 7 uh, long cairn. Long but it's atypical in that respect that if it is a long cairn, it's got a massive um, kind of dolmen type chamber in the middle of it. So one of the questions we need to ask is, is that dolmen primary and does it exist before the long cairn is constructed around it? Because you certainly do get these patterns of, of multi-stage cairn construction uh, in many areas of Western Britain, or is something else going on? And we won't know that until we're able to, to excavate. Now, what, what we're planning to do is a, a non-destructive excavation, which is, is, is geared to understanding the monument and presenting it to the public. So what we're hoping to do is simply uh, excavate down in, in, onto the cairn surface and plan and you know, do drone photogrammetry and so on rather than actually do any, any excavation that destroys any, any of the fabric of the monument and then cover it back up. Because at the moment, I think it's, a, it's an undervalued monument. It's, it's a place that you can visit and it's, it's open to the public, but I think it would be great if that, that site could be explained to a much greater extent. And, and in order to do that, we need to know what kind of site it is. So yeah, hopefully many more years of excavation in the Dorsten area. And hopefully some of the students who are now arriving at Manchester will be part of the project uh, next summer or the summer after that. Yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> fingers crossed, definitely. Is there anything else you want to add? That was all really helpful, so thank you very much. Well, uh, what can I say? Um, just that it's, it's a lovely part of the world to, to go and spend your summers. And I feel really bereft not to have been there this summer. Um, I know it's, it's bad enough not going on holiday, but having a summer without an excavation is absolutely appalling. So I know we hope that what is going on in the world at the moment is going to disappear before next summer and that we'll all be back. Uh, and I know, as I say, it's just such a lovely place to go and work. Uh, we camp in lovely surroundings on the cricket field there's a wonderful pub in the village. Um, I do hope that the students who I'm going to be teaching in the Neolithic too 
uh, in the coming year are going to have that experience and be able to, to go in and, uh, and it, it, as I say, just experience this wonderful little corner of England. Okay, so thank you very much to Julian for talking us through the site and all the technical aspects. Me and Alice are just going to quickly talk about what it was like being a student digging at Dorston, because obviously we have some experience of doing that and hopefully we can just give, even though it won't be like future jigs might not be at the exact same site. If you go to sort of Arthur's Stone, if they do it, then you might get an idea of like what the student experience is at these digs. So would you like to start Alice talking about what your experience was? Um, yeah, so first off it's not just Manchester students, it's Cardiff students. Uh, that, was, that was really cool because a lot of them were doing more scientific based mm -hmm. archaeology degrees so it was really really cool seeing their, their angle coming into it from a more scientific perspective because I know that at least three people that I, I spoke to during the dig were doing um, BSCs rather than BAs. So having that sort of scientific background before coming into a dig, it was really cool to see different perspectives. Mm -hmm. And there was just a lot of different people, wasn't there? There was people yeah. coming in, volunteering for a few days here and there. So it was great to just meet lots. And a lot of people were like actual professionals. <laughs> Yeah, that was really cool to see where archaeology can take you. Yeah. What sort of things did you personally learn at the dig? Um, I thought that, you know, section drawings, mm. I did a lot of them. I thought they were quite <laughs> cool. Yes. Love section um, drawings. Good old Harris Matrix. No, I hate them. But, um, them. <laughs> at least they were there. They, they were there. It was cool digging in. I think quite a lot of people I spoke to um, said that the the soil, specifically at Dawson, is quite difficult to, mm. um, to to dig. So it was quite cool being able to practice on harder soil because, like, my past digs have been on fairly normal yeah. soil. Yeah, was having to be more clay. Mm. Speaking of digging or troweling, there is a big <laughs> a big thing in archaeology about what trowel you use. I was absolutely slated for using a Marshalltown <laughs> instead of a WHS. Absolutely WHS slated. all the way. No. It's too three it's really difficult. Like Marshalltown has like a bounce. It's nice. I have a springy trowel. And I, I just don't like the spring. It's just so much better. I mean, if we ever get to meet these Americans that come to the Arthur Stone dig, I'm sure they'll agree with me because Marshalltown is the American favourite and WHS is very much the British favourite. You can have two halves of the, the campsite. You can go off with your, your Marshalltown I'll friends. accept that. I will accept it. I'll never speak to any of the WHS lot ever again. <laughs> I've disowned you all. Oh, no. <laughs> That's actually another element of it is you know, the camping. Yes. Which I was, personally enjoyed. <laughs> it was an experience. I've never been camping before. That was my first time camping and it was throwing me in at the deep end, I think. Oh, it really was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To go from never having camped to two weeks in a field. Yes. 
I mean, it is a lot of fun. I really, I don't want to scare people off in no. camping or anything like that. Like it is, it's a really good experience, but it's a lot. It's a lot. But yeah. It is good because, you know, you've got the campfire and mm-hmm. everyone going around. And were you there for, um, I think you might have gone by then, but we had uh, like a local band, some kids. No, that I was there. In the that was great. Oh, that was it was so good and they everyone got up and and played instruments and stuff yeah it was great it's just yeah even though you've not known these people for very long you sort of all bond it's nice mm-hmm. yeah it's a real community and it's really nice yeah. and i think especially for you because um basically in dawson you can well i don't know how it'll be in the future but you used to be able to stay for either two weeks or the whole four weeks and i stayed for two weeks but alice stayed for the whole four weeks so I think you really got a sense of <laughs> what was going on. Yeah, so the sort of the personal side of doing four weeks at Dawson is that you get to know everyone so well and you get to know lecturers better and um, understand sort of more how the department works. And then you get to see the full dig, which is really, really cool because you get yeah. to go from having like barely any trenches opened to basically backfilling which I have to say I skipped out on (laughs) oh nice yeah I have to say because I was only there for the first two weeks I didn't really know what happened like most of the the actual finds and like understanding of the site happened in the second two weeks which Mm. I'm still mad about because you know I didn't find anything (laughs) I found a nut yes one nut that might have been mesolithic maybe exciting (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, I'd probably recommend going for the whole time, even if it is a long time to be in a tent. Yeah, I mean, the weather was great. It was, actually. Didn't you have a thunderstorm, though? We did have one thunderstorm, but by the time we woke up, it was all dry again. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it was It was really hot. I got such a tan, like, taking it Dawson. Me too. I've never tanned before in my life, but I came out of Dawson with like weird tan strips. Oh yeah, that's another thing. If you're digging, you will have the weirdest tan lines ever. It's just like the back of your neck and the back of your arms are just like really dark and the rest of you is like ghostly pale. I suppose some of the things, the food was actually really nice. Yeah, oh my god, Claire was amazing. Because she was an angel and made me lots of vegan food, and that was very nice mm-hmm. of her. <laughs> yeah, it was. I was not, you know, I was expecting the worst for you. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, but actually, the food was very, very inclusive. I know. There's so many vegan options. Very exciting. And the pub. And the pub. The greatest pub in the entire country, nay, the world. <laughs> the Pandy Inn. Is it the Pandy Inn or is it just the Pandy? I think it's the Pandy Inn. The Pandy Inn. I think. It's honestly the best pub of all time. I adore that pub. I miss it greatly. I miss the Aspel. It just tastes better in the Pandy. It's so good. (laughs) Chips. Oh, the chips were divine. So that was another great part. And um, at Dawson, they did like um, trips on the day off. So basically you work six days of the week. And yeah. then you're off usually on Saturday. Is it Saturday? Yeah, or I think. I think. Ooh. One of the weeks. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so they do like trips to Hereford and Hayon Wye. So it was really fun. And I really yeah. hope they get to do Arthur Stone next year. 
Fingers crossed. And I hope that we get to go to it. <laughs> mm. But yeah, yeah, I think it's good to just say our experience because obviously the first years and the second years now haven't actually got that. Of course, I completely forgot that. So yeah, hopefully they'll be able to do it next year and yeah, have a great time and get very drunk and dig lots of fields. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. Okay. So thank you very much for listening. Um, next time we're going to be doing E for experimental archaeology and we're going to have another special guest on, John Pibrani. Woo! <laughs> Yay! So see you uh, next episode for that. Bye! Bye!